From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is coming to Colorado. The league yanked the game from Atlanta and moved it to Coors Field because the Georgia legislature passed new voting laws that critics say are too restrictive. Some Republicans are calling for an MLB boycott. Meanwhile, city and state leaders in Colorado are calling the move a big economic win. So what do Georgia's voting laws have to do with baseball? And how do Colorado's laws stack up against Georgia's? Then Purplish, CPR's politics podcast, explores bills in the state legislature that have the potential to affect everyday life, even if they aren't getting a lot of attention. And I found that just fascinating to watch, all those secondary bills, you might call them, whether they change how you get takeout food or beer or maybe your next hike in the woods. stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado hit an economic and perhaps political home run this week when Major League Baseball decided to move its summer all-star game to Coors Field in Denver. We're going to talk about the politics behind the decision and what they have to do with baseball in a moment. But first, what did it take to bring the game to Colorado from Georgia? CPR's Vic Vela joins me now. Hi, Vic. Avery, after all these years talking to Ryan, it's nice to be on with the real star of Colorado Matters. <laughs> it's always good to talk with you. Denver, <laughs> it has hosted the All-Star Game just once before, more than two decades ago, back in 1998. Yeah. How big a deal is this for baseball fans in the region? You know, I, I think um, you know, anytime an All-Star Game comes to your city, it's one of those rare events that everyone can rally around, right? Like, even if you don't like sports ball. You can get excited about like a, an event coming to your town. It's not quite the Super Bowl, but it is special. Um, and I think uh, you even saw some of that excitement from Governor Polis and, and Mayor Hancock at the press conference yesterday. Um, I think it all. It, the, I, I joke that the uh, press conference broke the all-time record for most baseball puns and sports metaphors in press conference history. So, I mean, they're excited and fans are excited. And I think... The added layer to this, Avery, is it's finally good news for a change, right? Like, we've been cooped up in our houses for more than a year now, and fans are just excited to see the best players in the world come to Denver. Right. It's exciting to be able to get excited. Yeah. Major League Baseball decided to pull the game from Atlanta and move it to Denver after Georgia passed new rules that critics say made it, make it harder to vote. Even though this seems very sudden, efforts to bring a future All-Star game to Colorado actually laid the groundwork for that decision, right? Yeah, and not only that, it, it clinched the deal for Denver. And Major League Baseball said as much in their press release that they put out yesterday, that, that the city had already been vetted, so to speak. Uh, you know, Colorado leaders were hoping to host a future All-Star game, uh, you know, maybe a few years out or something like that. So... Uh, that meant they had they had already submitted plans for hotels and security and things like that. So they weren't starting from scratch. And, uh, you know, baseball officials had already visited Colorado recently. 
And you mentioned that excitement from city and state leaders. They're saying this is a big economic win, especially during the pandemic. How much money do they think the All-Star Game will generate for Colorado? Oh, gosh. You know, when I was watching that press conference yesterday, the governor and, and Mayor Hancock reminded me of like cartoon characters with the dollar signs coming <laughs> out of their eyes and the and the sound effect of a cash register going off. I mean, I mean, they were flat out giddy about this announcement. And you know, Polis said the all-star events could bring in $190 million in tourism revenue for Colorado. And you know, and that's going to come from hotel stays and restaurants. And, and these are the very industries that have been hit really hard by the pandemic, right? So, um, and both Mayor Hancock and Governor Polis touched on that uh, in their remarks. Here's what they had to say. It's been a long year, and I can think of nothing more energizing to help advance our recovery and to boost our economy than by bringing the 2021 Midsummer Classic back to the Mile High City. That's incredibly good news for our small businesses, our restaurants, our hotels, and our workers who have struggled and suffered through this pandemic. It took a true team effort to get to this point. It's really a pivotal turning point, not just for our return to normalcy, but the opportunity to move forward to highlight Denver and Colorado nationally, showing some of the most amazing talent from across baseball, uh, all coming here to Colorado. Get ready for a truly epic home run derby at a mile above sea level. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Governor Polis speaking there. One of the big unknowns in all of this, of course, is the ongoing pandemic and possible restrictions. What do we know about how many fans will be allowed in the stadium? Well, right now, you know, at this moment, if you wanted to go to a baseball game at Coors Field, it can be about 40% full with current coronavirus restrictions. But keep in mind that this game is still three months away, which, you know, as we've learned, it's an eternity in a pandemic, right? But Polis is really confident. He expects a full house. And, you know, it may seem really weird to fans right now thinking about you know, sit, sitting shoulder to shoulder with tens of thousands of people right now. But the governor's really downplaying any restrictions for the game. Here's what he had to say. As we've indicated, consistent with what President Biden has said, every American who wants to be vaccinated will be able to get it by the end of May. And frankly, we're thinking it'll be closer to mid to late May, which means immunity by late June. And of course, we're talking about a uh, mid-July game. So there are really no concerns from that front. Uh, everybody will have been able to be vaccinated by then. The state is um, pulling back on restrictions in mid-April. Uh, many parts of Colorado will be targeting mid to late May for doing that. Plenty of room there. And, and I think everybody expects a fully packed sellout stadium in July. And just a quick follow-up there, Avery, uh, official ticket information hasn't been announced yet. Vic, thank you for joining us. Thank you. CPR's Vic Vela reporting on the Major League Baseball All-Star Game coming to Colorado this summer. As we said, the reason Major League Baseball yanked the game from Atlanta is the Georgia legislature passed new voting laws that critics believe are too restrictive. What does that have to do with baseball, and how do Georgia's voting laws stack up with Colorado's? Let's start with understanding exactly what passed in Georgia. Jessica Hoosman covers elections for the nonprofit newsroom VoteBeat. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. First, what does the Georgia voting reform law include? 
Well, it includes a lot. It's 89 pages long and um, deals with everything from defining exactly what a Dropbox is in a really restrictive way to, in fact, expanding early voting hours in a lot of rural counties across the state. And while the original proposal for this bill would have um, outlawed Sunday voting, a pretty direct hit at Black voters in that state, this bill actually um, enshrines Sunday voting into law. So it, it changed quite a lot from its original form to what was eventually signed by Governor Kemp, but I still think that there are some legitimate concerns with the legislation that that will be meted out over the next couple of years. And something that we've heard a lot about is criminalizing giving food and water to people waiting in line to vote. Can you explain that? Yeah, so this bill would make it illegal to give anyone a bottle of water or some food as they wait in line to vote. Um, This was a particularly popular thing to do in 2020, especially in the first couple of days of early voting in Georgia, where lines were wrapped around the block in some of the major urban counties like Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is. Um, But, you know, I, I am not as convinced as others that this is a terrible thing. Obviously, it's very stupid. There's really no reason that this should be in the law at all. But, you know, the average wait time after the first couple of days of early voting when when counties were able to sort out some of their their more, you know, ham-fisted mistakes was about three minutes in Georgia. So so folks are really not waiting in line in Georgia as long as, as people think that they are. And this bill also would force counties that have had, had historically long waits to break up precincts in which waits um, exceed a certain time limit. So the bill does deal with the problem of long lines in Georgia. We will see how effective that is come the next federal election. Um, but it, but essentially, I think that the argument is that campaigns abused the food and water as advertising tools. I don't know how true that is. Um, I didn't hear any reports of complaints during the election. Um, but hopefully folks will not be waiting in line long enough to justify the need for a bottle of water as they wait to cast a ballot. Now, Colorado politicians are pointing to this and saying Colorado's voting system is a gold standard. Is that fair to say? <laughs> You know, I think comparatively across the country, it is it is one of the gold standard states. You have extremely high voter participation, so that speaks to the efficacy of the system. Um, and you know, a lot of voting advocates hold up all mail voting as as really what all states should be striving for. And I think a lot of states are certainly moving in that direction, especially after the twenty twenty pandemic. And some commentators on the right are crying foul because they see different aspects of Colorado's law as more restrictive than Georgia's. Is that a fair comparison? Tell me a little bit more about those comparisons. Well, I mean, you know, if you just look at the raw requirements, there are some Georgia laws that do appear to be more um, expansive than than Colorado. So, for example, Georgia has 30 days of early voting. Colorado only has 15. That said, though, it's sort of a false comparison because as a percentage, not many Georgians vote by mail and all of Colorado basically does. And so you just don't need 30 days of of early voting locations for people to go and physically vote. 15 days is a perfectly long amount of time to accommodate those that would prefer to vote in person. So, you know, I think without any context, there are situations in which 
which uh, Cal- or which Colorado's laws could appear to be less good than Georgia's. But I think in reality, that's simply not true. And and if you're looking for proof that Colorado's laws are more expansive and inclusive, I think you only really have to look at the v- percentage of voter turnout in 2020, which in Colorado was 10 full percentage points higher than Georgia's. So clearly, even if the laws on the books may appear to be more expansive in practice, they're certainly not. And and I think without that context, the right wing commentators making those claims are are really giving false information to their listeners and viewers. Now, all states have different voting systems, but there always seems to be more scrutiny whenever southern states pass voting reforms. Is the scrutiny fair? Oh, you know, as a Texan, uh, born and raised and currently living here, um, this has bothered me for quite some time. You know, I think that a lot of blue states in the North and the West have gotten away with having pretty um, restrictive voting laws by virtue of the fact that they vote blue. And so progressive activist groups don't really feel much need to, to get over there and fix laws in Connecticut, for example, which allows no early voting at all currently. Um, whereas Texas and, and Colorado have several weeks of early, or Texas and Colorado and Georgia have several weeks of early voting. So I, so I think that, yes, there, there is an unfair focus on, on the South in terms of restrictive laws. That said, though, I think that it is substantially true that Southern states, uh, especially Republican Southern states, are very quickly rolling back the once- pretty good voting laws that many of these states have. Um, So I vote in Texas and I appreciate the early voting. I appreciate vote centers. I appreciate the ability to kind of go wherever I need to go to cast my ballot. Um, But new laws in Texas would roll all of that back. Whether or not they will pass is sort of up for debate. But I think that you know, the point that advocates make that, that um, you know, more progressive voting states are quickly expanding their troubling voting laws and southern states with good voting laws are quickly rolling them back. Uh, you, you know, I think that that is a troubling sign of what's to come. Jessica, I want to thank you so much for or so much for joining me. Of course. Yeah. Jessica Hoosman is the editorial director of VoteBeat, a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to election reporting. Major League Baseball historically hasn't taken a stand on political issues, so its decision to move the annual All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver in response to Georgia's voting reforms raised a lot of eyebrows, particularly among longtime MLB fans. Some Republican leaders are even calling for a boycott. Let's talk about the intersection of politics and sports. Dave Zirin is the sports editor for The Nation magazine. Hi, Dave. Hello. Thanks for having me. Alex Reamer is the deputy managing editor of OutSports. Hi, Alex. It's great to be here. Dave, First time. this is the first time in recent memory that Major League Baseball has really taken a political stand. Why have they put their weight behind this issue? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why they have. I mean, one reason is the culture has changed very dramatically in the last year. 2020 saw the largest anti-racist marches in the history of the United States after the police murder of George Floyd. They affected all 50 states. Uh, That's something Major League Baseball is considering. Another reason is that baseball is very publicly trying to get younger 
uh, viewers, younger fans. Baseball has the oldest fans of any of the four major sports in the United States. And I think they're trying to connect with a younger audience. And I think another reason as well is that their own corporate sponsors did not want Georgia to be the backdrop of the game, not with the laws that Brian Kemp had pushed through, especially when this was supposed to be a year to honor the late Henry Aaron, uh, who has roots in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And the idea of celebrating the memory of the great Hank Aaron, the great Hammer and Hank, with Georgia as a backdrop and with Major League Baseball facing three months of questions about why they were going to have this celebration of Hank Aaron with Georgia as a backdrop. I think that just proved to be too much cognitive dissonance for Major League Baseball to bear. And at the end of the day, the decision was quite simple. This was just too many headaches for the organization. Alex, I want to get your perspective here to why this issue and why now? Um, yeah, I, I think Dave hit a lot of that. You know, this really kind of fits in with the zeitgeist of the times. I mean, we're seeing corporations over the last several years really take more of these progressive social stances. And frankly, this isn't all that new for professional sports leagues. I mean, it's new for Major League Baseball, but you go back to 2017, the NFL, NBA, and baseball too put pressure on then Arizona Governor Jan Brewer to veto anti-LGBTQ legislation in her state, which she did uh, a year before that. The NFL threatened to pull Super Bowls from Atlanta if then-Georgia Governor Nathan Deal signed an anti-LGBTQ initiative, and he vetoed that bill. We know that Mike Pence even responded to business pressure, including from the NCAA, uh, for his state's anti-LGBTQ bill. And of course, this is stuff we cover every day at Outsports. So yeah, it fits in with the movement of the times. When you talk about pro sports leagues, putting business pressure on states uh, for socially regressive policies, um, we've been seeing this for the last handful of years, at least, if not uh, longer than that. And as you said, we've watched in recent years as pro athletes have taken stands on issues like racial justice. And I'm thinking here of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem when he played football for the 49ers. Kaepernick was protesting racial inequality and police brutality. How far back does this kind of politics in sports go? I mean, it goes back as far as there have been sports in this country. I mean, that's as long as there's been organized sports in the United States, there's been a gap between the ideals of sports, this idea that anybody who's good enough can play, and the reality, which is that for people of color, for women, uh, there, is, there is not equal opportunity. And so you could look at the entire history of sports as the fight for equal opportunity. And through that fight, whether you're talking about Jack Johnson trying to become the first a black heavyweight champion and being denied the opportunity to Jackie Robinson, to Muhammad Ali, to Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, the list goes on and on. The politics of sports have always been there. This idea that Major League Baseball is imposing politics on sports when sports has always been a political arena, I think is a very false narrative. I would say, though, if I may, the difference now is sports have never been more political. And I think a re or there are a couple reasons why. Number one is the advent of social media. I mean, previously, and Dave knows this, athletes talk to reporters or could speak to the public when? After the games in locker rooms or after the games at podiums. So of course, what were they asked about? The game, trades, etc. Now it's social media. LeBron James can send out a tweet about any social or political matter he wants, and it becomes front page news. And the other reason is the whole Michael Jordan slogan, Republicans buy sneakers too. And I know Mitch McConnell said, you know, Republicans drink Coca-Cola, watch baseball. Uh, that's not really the corporate environment anymore. You know, to go back, I go to an athlete, Nat Natasha Cloud, 
who's an openly bisexual woman. She plays for the WNBA. She's so socially active. She sat out last season to pursue social justice initiatives. Converse made her one of the spokespeople of their new basketball brand. I mean, previously that would have been unforeseeable. So athletes, there's a corporate advantage. There's a financial advantage too to possibly speaking out, which I think uh, only propels them to be more outspoken. It strikes me also that we are talking about a a lot of different pro sports at once. Is there anything about baseball in particular and its role in politics that we should mention? Yeah, I think we need to mention that baseball is the most conservative of sports. So to have them make this move, it cuts deeply for the GOP. I think that's why they've responded with what I I would describe as darn near hysterics. I mean, the GOP's official Twitter feed yesterday basically put out a tweet linking Major League Baseball, of all things, to some international communist conspiracy (laughs) in Cuba. I mean, this is baseball we're talking about. Baseball, a sport that's so conservative at its core that the idea of flipping a bat could get a hundred mile an hour fastball thrown at your head. I mean, baseball is a sport that only had one player kneel when Kaepernick was kneeling and a lot of players across sports were kneeling. That was Bruce Maxwell of the Oakland days. And he found himself uh, shuttled right out of the league. And I think only one or two players even spoke out in defense of his, of his exile. I mean, this is what baseball is. So to have them take this kind of a step is really different. And I think a sea change took place that was not commented upon as much as it should have been last August when baseball took part in the strikes that took place across sports after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That was new for baseball. And I think we're seeing some of the after effects of that in Major League Baseball's decision. Let's talk. I will say quickly. Oh, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alex. No, I was just going to say, I will say quickly, though, because of baseball's conservative uh, landscape and it's, I think, conservative fan base. Remember, the average, the average baseball viewer is 57 years old. This was the lowest rated World Series ever for baseball. So fewer and fewer people are actually baseball fans. And those who remain are old and white. <laughs> they generally are more conservative. So, uh, well, I think it's debatable as to whether all of this social justice stuff has had negative impacts on the NFL and NBA's ratings. I think for baseball, it actually really could, and it's something to watch. Alex, you actually bring us exactly to what I want to talk about, and that's the declining viewership during the pandemic for all pro sports, but MLB in particular has actually been seeing a steady decrease long before the pandemic. But I wonder, does the MLB risk alienating its current audience as it tries to appeal to maybe more younger people? Well, it's making a bet. Um, It's making a bet that it's not going to die out by trying to appeal to younger fans. I mean, what what Alex is talking about is something I've heard major league executives talk about, the union talk about. It's a true existential fear that this most American of games could be in the decades to come something that actually dies out. So this idea of trying to reach younger fans is something that they're working on in the commissioner's office. They're trying to figure out how to have faster games, more excitement, a runner on second to start every extra inning. The purists are absolutely losing it, no matter what their politics. But baseball is trying to figure out a way to survive. And they're trying to connect with a generation that's the most demographically diverse generation in U.S. history, the most protest-ready generation, arguably, in U.S. history, and a generation that's the most intolerant of intolerance in, in, in U.S. history. So that's the landscape. And Major League Baseball is making a bet that they can appeal outside of their core demographic. Alex and Dave, thank you for being here. Dave Zirin is the sports editor for The Nation magazine and author of Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. Alex Reamer is the deputy managing editor for Outsports. 
Up next, some bills in the state legislature that might affect your everyday life, even though they're not getting much attention. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You've been here a long time, and you remember when that giant rectangular apartment building was a block of tiny houses. Or you just got here, and the view from this apartment shows you a whole new city to explore. I'm David Sachs, and it's Map Week at Denverite. One thing we're talking about? Mental maps, and how your experience with the city defines how you see development, politics, and the future of our shared space. Denverite, in your inbox and at denverite.com. Powered by Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Several big themes dominate this state legislative session. Transportation, climate change, and now gun control, to name a few. But there is actually a whole other side of the legislature, I would say. You know, like tons and tons of bills that ultimately could actually directly affect your life, just maybe not in such an attention-grabbing way. That's CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. On the latest episode of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast, he and fellow public affairs reporter Benta Berkland talk about some of those bills that fly a little under the radar. There's so many bills during a session, and a lot of them actually do make it through the legislative process. And I think it's interesting because bills in Colorado, even if they don't ultimately pass, will get a hearing and an up or down vote. That's a requirement. So it's Hmm. different than what we see at the federal level, where it's sometimes a big deal if a bill even gets one committee hearing. Obviously, those certain topics that grab a lot of attention and take plenty of energy, but still so many other issues that are pretty impactful to everyday people. And I found that just fascinating to watch all those secondary bills, you might call them, uh, in these first two sessions that I've covered. So whether they change how you get takeout food or beer or maybe your next hike in the woods. You kind of have a a mechanism to track all these bills, right? Yeah, I have a spreadsheet for everything, Benta. You know this. My bill tracker has more than 400 proposals in it currently that are all making their way through the legislature. Some of them are already passed through. Some of them have been rejected. Mm -hmm. Out of those 400, I've tagged more than 100 that I'm personally interested in in some way or that just stuck out to me. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) And we've probably written about, you know, 10 of them at most. So I think a little more than that. But I mean, it's it's hard (laughs) to get to everything that you want to. It really is. We wish we could. So let's let's just go through some of the ones that, that have stuck out in some way. I mentioned hiking in the woods. There's a bill that would kind of get the state more involved in supporting search and rescue and developing search and rescue programs. And then there's one that would, it's um, delivery for alcohol and beer. And that that was kind of in response to the pandemic. A lot of people have been ordering things remotely and lawmakers want to allow that to continue. There's another one that would also allow a third party company to deliver your beer for you. 1-800-BEER-RUN. And, and, you know, that's obviously kind of continuing a policy that, that got some traction during the pandemic, the idea of delivering alcohol. Another bill that comes out of the pandemic would require businesses to accept cash. So we've seen during the pandemic that a lot of times that hasn't been the case. Like McDonald's, for instance, was preferring people pay with a credit card. So yep. this bill would say businesses have to accept cash, which is, I think, prior to the pandemic, I wouldn't have ever anticipated this type of legislation being introduced. I don't think it, people would have felt it was necessary. And isn't that such a good example of like the kind of difference that a state law can make, even without getting a ton of attention, because that affects every transaction that you make, guarantees that you can use legal tender. 
And then you know, there's other measures that have been in the works for a long time. So here's a bill that's failed before. Um, it's actually headed to the governor now. And what it would do is eliminate the statute of limitations in civil cases for sexual assault. And so this wow. bill passed overwhelmingly. Um, Republican Representative Matt Soper is one of the main sponsors. This is 30 years in the making to be able to give victims of rape and sexual assault the opportunity to make their day in court when they're ready to tell their story. So previously in civil cases, you had six years for childhood rape and sexual assault to file a civil case. Another bill that's that's moving through the legislature right now that's more controversial um, would add gender identity and gender expression to the state's anti-discrimination laws. So right now, uh, you know, sexual orientation is part of that, but not gender identity and gender ex- expression. And so we heard some kind of passionate uh, remarks on the House floor, and Republicans are concerned that these definitions are too subjective, and they're not clear enough in the law, and that even if businesses are, are trying to comply with this, it'll be difficult to do so. And now that's the kind of bill that in certain sessions or in certain states could end up being the main focus. You know, mm-hmm. I was in North Carolina before this, and some of the anti-trans people bills ended up totally defining state politics for a period of years. This year, though, not, I would say, the central, central focus of what's going on. Um, Let's keep going through our list of a ban on single-use plastics and certain styrofoam containers. Like, That's huge. Yeah, that's in the legislature right now, and I would wager a fair amount of people don't know about that. There's a Farm Workers Bill of Rights that, similarly, huge for that industry, huge for the people that work in it, guaranteeing a state minimum wage rather than just the federal minimum wage for those workers, letting them unionize. And, you know, the list goes on. And that for, for the farm worker bill, I was talking to someone connected to the agriculture industry, and there's a lot of concerns there about what this bill would mean for the ag industry and for workers unionizing, higher wages, that type of thing. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. But definitely a very big deal and a change for Colorado if that did become law. And just another good example of how outside of those bills that affect everybody or that everybody cares about, there's just tons and tons that dig into these individual topics that have significant effects just for maybe a smaller portion of the population or the industry. But now let's back up a little bit, Benta. We've, we've talked about this idea that some of these bills are fighting for attention a little bit or, or aren't getting it. What is dominating this session? Just to remind people. Obviously, we're still in the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. So going into this session, we heard from Republicans, from Democrats, from the governor that recovering from the pandemic, economic recovery, stimulus money would be a big focus of the session. I I think that's the case, but they still haven't decided exactly how to spend that money. And Mm -hmm. that's something we'll be seeing in the next few weeks. Passing a state budget, there's a state stimulus, there's the federal money coming into Colorado, and there's some discretion there on how that money will be spent. And then also big issues that, that lawmakers want to tackle around transportation, gun policy, climate change, public option for health care. Um, some of those have started to be introduced, but they haven't had their hearings and, and some haven't been introduced yet. Yeah. And we're coming up on close to maybe halfway done with this session. Um, I'm curious, though, you've covered this longer than me, Benta. How does this compare to previous sessions? It feels to me like just a ton of big stuff and a ton of medium stuff and a ton of small stuff. Is this normal? I think in some ways, yes. A, a lot of the heavier, bigger, more complicated things take time. Even though every bill gets a public hearing, a lot of the work happens behind the scenes when people are trying to negotiate what the details are going to be for when they introduce a bill. 
And so Democratic Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg you know, noted that there's a lot of work people have been doing for the last few months, and it's about to come to fruition. It'll be heavy. It'll be maybe long floor work and big debates. But, you know, I, that's the work we do. It's not that different, really, if you think about it from every other session. Every session, something comes up. I suspect the tragedy in Boulder isn't going to be the only thing that comes up that we want to urgently address. But this past year has been a roller coaster already, and um, we're, we're clearly also dealing with the pandemic and, and the economic recoveries. So that tragedy he's referring to in Boulder, of course, the, uh, the mass murder, the mass shooting of 10 people in a grocery store. Bent, we were talking earlier about how some of these potentially controversial bills, um, like on gender, for example, hadn't taken over the whole session. Do you think that something like a gun bill that they could introduce in response to the Boulder shooting, a potential assault weapons ban, does that have the potential to derail some of these smaller and medium-sized bills? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's a contentious topic. People have very strong feelings. I covered the legislature in 2013 when Democrats passed a high-capacity magazine ban and universal background checks, and that was probably the most intense thing I've ever covered from a a pushback perspective. Yet they did eventually become a law. Uh, Two lawmakers were recalled from office, and then Democrats lost the state Senate. But during that debate at the Capitol, I mean, it was people circling the building in vehicles with horns blaring, you know, dawn till dusk. It was more crowded than I've ever seen that building. Uh, You know, we do already have some gun policies moving through the legislature right now, a measure to require safe storage of firearms, a measure to require reporting lost and stolen firearms. There's a bill being drafted that hasn't been introduced yet, but will require a three-day waiting period after you purchase a firearm. And then In the works, potentially, are proposals that would let cities pass stricter gun laws than the state. And then a statewide assault weapons ban. I think Democrats in Boulder and Denver are aware that that's going to be a very tough lift politically, even though Mm -hmm. Democrats are in charge of the legislature. I can think of already three or more Democrats that would not support a statewide ban. It's going to be tough, but a Democratic lawmaker said nothing's off the table. They're having those discussions right now. And I I recently talked to quite a few gun owners to get their take on where everything stands. And a lot of people are owners for a variety of reasons. It is just one step towards outlawing guns. And you could say, well, we'd never want to do that because you hear that. But I don't think that's the truth. I'm one of the good guys. But you want to make me a criminal because. You want to take away a right that I hold dear because you're afraid. They could try to pass something on the state level ignoring the Western Slope, but I think it'd be really hard even for the governor to do it right now. The one thing that would flip Colorado red is this. I think this will be that big. So imagine if that turns into cars circling the Capitol, honking horns, full out you know, resistance to a bill that would have pretty big implications for the rest of the agenda, right? I think Democrats are well aware of that, uh, people in leadership, as well as Republicans. Mm. Um, I'd say the biggest thing I heard from people who'd be opposed to an assault-style weapons ban across the state is they don't really feel it will be effective at all, and they don't think it would save lives. Supporters say, yes, it would, and every little bit helps. So a, a big divide on that issue, although I think we may see people come together on mental health services. Everyone does seem to be on board with increasing mental health services and doing a better job there. 
But having said that, that's a complicated public policy discussion, you know, improving mental health care. There's so many facets to mental health systems and hospital beds and treatment, and it it just goes on and on. So that I think that we'll see some agreement there, but what they actually get done, that's a lot to tackle as well to figure out next steps there. And how much time and energy do they have for it? How much of a dance is there? Any single lawmaker is allowed to introduce a certain number of bills. How much negotiating goes on within that caucus to decide, like, hey, we don't want you guys to talk about an assault weapons ban right now. We want more focus on this. Or is it just kind of a free-for-all within the parties? Hmm, That's a really good question. It's definitely not a free-for-all. I would say lawmakers are allowed to introduce five bills. And so anything beyond that limit, you have to get approval from leadership. That's Democratic leaders in each chamber. So there's tons of bills that people introduce beyond that five-bill limit. But we're at that point in the session where you need to get approval for that. So I think you're exactly right. You know, people don't want to take a very tough vote that may be difficult for them politically. Maybe they don't personally support it. Maybe they have constituents, especially Democrats in more conservative areas like Pueblo. There could be a lot of pushback. So one thing is, are you going to put people through a tough vote if you don't think it'll ultimately pass? So that's one discussion. Sometimes you don't know if it's really going to pass until you really do put it to a vote, though. So Hmm. there's a tons of negotiation, not just on the gun policy proposals, but so many other things as well. And they are going to run out of time eventually. I mean, the session will end by about mid-June. And so I don't think anyone wants to go into an extra special session. We've already had a special session in December They took a break because of COVID and they were in session last summer, which they're never in session in the summer. So it's kind of felt like a year plus legislative session on and off. So I don't expect session to go beyond the 120 days. Well, Benta, we've talked about a few different types of bills. And just to kind of restate it, I would almost put it as the big things that the parties as a whole come in knowing that they want to do. Stuff like transportation, as we as we discussed. Mm-hmm. And then there's the big things that you have to respond to, the tragic shooting, the pandemic. And then the bills that we were talking up at the top, the more maybe you'd call them obscure or maybe just more individual, like the, the bills that come from individual lawmakers mm-hmm. seem like their own kind of set. In your experience, where do lawmakers actually come up with these ideas about what they want to do? I think for some of the personal things you were talking about, it could just be based on someone's life experience and their expertise based on work or family. I know one lawmaker who wants to focus on mental health, her son suffers from schizophrenia and bipolar. And so that brought her into that. Mm. Um, We've got Representative Monica Duran. She's a a Democrat and she's um, dealt with domestic violence. Um, And so she's sponsored some of that legislation. And then for other, other people, I think it's just things that are brought to them from constituents or certainly lobbyists and industries and people who back them when they're running for office. I know we've reported quite a bit on Kyle Mullica. He's an emergency room nurse, and that's definitely informed a lot of the legislation he's passing, as well as uh, we have a one medical doctor in the legislature, Yadira Caraveo. She's a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's just like anything else, you know, what you're personally interested in. I don't know if anything stood out to you from from a member. Well, you know, in general, what what's really struck me is that it's not just the two parties in there. It's a ton of ideas. It's a ton of individual people all trying to get stuff done in a limited time. 
And then in terms of how ideas become bills, become laws, I've also noticed that there's a fair amount where an idea will just kind of propagate from a different state, you know, especially Mm -hmm. for our Democrats and our progressives. If you see something come up in California and Washington State and maybe Maryland and somewhere in the Northeast on health care or housing, there's a good chance that some version of it will appear here. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm always kind of delighted by the bills that are clearly just like something that got stuck in somebody's craw, just, you know, their their individual passion quest. The the best example that comes to mind is Greg Brophy, the, the former senator who was always on a quest to do away with daylight saving time. An unsuccessful quest, but yes, that was definitely something he was passionate about. With all these bills in the legislature at the same time, and some getting more attention than others, one thing I think we'll be curious about is, are some of these meant to fly under the radar a little bit? Obviously not the daylight saving time, but do lawmakers ever try to disguise or hide what they're doing? I would say, yeah, it depends on the bill. Certainly there's some that I would think the lobbyists and and the interests don't necessarily want a lot of attention. They just feel like it will put more pressure on a lawmaker to vote against it. And sometimes that just happens naturally, not even because they're trying to do that. I would say bills in Colorado are required to be based on a single subject. So you can't have a bill that's, let's say, about a plastic ban, and then there's other things in there tied to a totally different topic. Yeah. So we see that in Congress at the federal level. So I think it's harder to like sneak things into an actual bill that are totally irrelevant. But a lot of things happen before a bill is even introduced. And so as a reporter, I'm always trying to kind of find out what those discussions are, because that's where sometimes the decisions are made before it's even in the public process. But, you know, the net result, you're right, with the single subject rule and all the committee hearings is it is hard to completely sneak something through, (laughs) I would think. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it is still possible to almost camouflage a bill, just in the sense that, like, there are so many things that are working on at once. There's a limited amount of attention the public's going to pay. So I think that sometimes in a really busy year, some of this stuff that, again, would have been session dominating in other years might be easier to pass. I don't know. What do you think? As much as I'd love to say people are paying close attention to the Colorado State Legislature and the Capitol, I know that's not the case. Just people have busy lives. There's a lot of things people have to prioritize. There's stuff at the federal level, other news. I mean, people have lives beyond following state government. So it's tough to get people to pay attention. And then, yeah, even for me, I feel overwhelmed by how much is happening and how much I feel like I can't get to, but I want to get to because it is important. It is interesting. So I think there can be information overload, not just from the state legislature, but just from all facets of society in a way. Yeah. And I think that's where politics really meets policy. It seems like a lot of politics is the art of knowing what to talk about and when and how to make people pay attention. We should also mention that besides the the questions of all these bills competing for time and energy, Republicans who are in the minority right now, obviously, they also have some tools at their disposal, right, to actually slow things down if they want and, and probably force Democrats to make some decisions about which bills to spend their time on. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the session does have an end date. Two years ago, when Democrats were passing a controversial bill related to oil and gas regulations, Republicans and other people, too, felt like it was moving too quickly. And so Republicans requested that a bill be read out loud at length, which you're allowed to do. It's in the state constitution. They picked a bill that wasn't controversial, but it was an extremely long bill. And reading it out loud at length would have taken a full week. And so nothing else could have happened in the Senate chamber. 
in response, Democrats sent a, set up a bank of five computers to read it at high, high speed. <laughs> anyway, there was a lawsuit. It just got resolved. The state Supreme Court ruled that the legislature could not use a bank of five computers to read a bill at high speeds like that. So they said the bill reading has to be understandable. They didn't say exactly what lawmakers had to do. Does it have to be a person or could it still be a computer just at a much slower speed? We don't know. We may find out later this session because I think when time becomes an issue and it's towards the end of session, I think we could see Republicans use this tactic. So we've kind of covered the spectrum here from small bills to big bills, individual priorities to party platforms. And of course, we didn't touch on half of the 100 plus things that I am personally interested in at the legislature. Future stories for you to uh, report on, right? going to give me anxiety <laughs> thinking about all those. Um, of course, people can follow along for themselves as well on our website and at the state legislature's website. And we welcome those questions that you might have about, uh, I don't know if this is a particular bill that you want to see covered more or a question about the process. Let us know. Meanwhile, we'll be getting ready for the second half of the session where, again, things are kind of expected to get faster and heavier and and just a little more chaotic. CPR Public Affairs reporters Andrew Kinney and Benta Berkland with the latest episode of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. You can download the whole show and previous episodes on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Almost a decade after Colorado legalized recreational cannabis, it's still pretty much an indoor crop. Cultivation tends to happen in closed warehouses. A new study confirms this has a massive carbon footprint, but it also found some unexpected ways growers could shrink it. Here's CPR's climate reporter, Sam Brash. According to Chris Baca, cannabis cultivation is really about tricking plants. Growing is all about your environmentals. Uh, We're trying to mimic a lot of things that happen outdoors, but in an indoor setting. Baca grows cannabis for the clinic, a Denver-based marijuana dispensary. Like most other growers in the city, he works in a windowless warehouse. That hum you're hearing is everything it takes to hoodwink his sprouts. We start off with the lights. Uh, It's obviously very bright in here. Um, With those lights, you're also going to get a rise in temperature. So we have a significant amount of AC that goes into these growing rooms. Meanwhile, fans draw in fresh air, pumps feed water and nutrients to roots. Baca says there's no way around it. In its current form, indoor growing uses a ton of energy. I've been a big fan of transparency in this industry, and I think the more we share our process and procedures with everybody and with amongst each other, I think we're able to uh, create you know, a better culture being environmentally conscious. A new study from Colorado State University breaks down that process and adds up each component's greenhouse gas emissions. Graduate student Haley Summers led the research published in Nature Sustainability. She says it takes the widest possible view of growing marijuana indoors. So a really quick example of what that means is if we're using fertilizers in a, in a grow house, uh, we accounted for emissions for actually producing those fertilizers. In her final assessment, indoor marijuana cultivation now accounts for nearly 1.5% of Colorado's greenhouse gas emissions. To put that in perspective, that's almost the climate impact of coal mining. When I compared it to some, of, some entire other sectors like coal mining, that's really when it, it really sank in for me. The research also found that more than 80% of those emissions can be chalked up to things that only happen with indoor grows. Think high-powered lights, heating, air conditioning. Most or all of that could be eliminated in outdoor or greenhouse facilities. For Summers, that all raises a basic question. Why are we growing plants indoors? 
In the study, Summer speculates it has a lot to do with Colorado's early legalization policies, which tried to keep cannabis out of public view. The idea was that add security and make it easier to regulate. Ben Gelt runs the Cannabis Certification Council, which promotes sustainable practices in the industry. He says that's part of the story, but not all of it. I certainly wouldn't disagree with the position that early regulation slanted the table towards indoor production, but that's a really such a small part of the puzzle. A bigger point, according to Gelt, customers. Sun-grown cannabis can use less energy, but it's not going to make the best thing for a pipe, a joint, or a social media post. Outdoor product tends to have a harder shell. It doesn't tend to have the same like sticky, like, you know, feel that you get a lot of times that you see on like Instagram and stuff. Gelt says that's why outdoor cannabis largely goes towards edibles or vape pens, products where you don't see the plant itself. He says from an environmental perspective, it'd be great if more growers moved outdoors or into greenhouses. But to just say like, we need to snap our fingers and do it. It's just, it's not realistic. So he says indoor operations also have to get better. One example can be seen at the clinic warehouse. Like most of the industry, Baca adds carbon dioxide to its grow rooms to supercharge plant growth. And so within a week, they get about a foot taller. They they grow a foot in a week. Cannabis growers usually ship CO2 over hundreds of miles. The clinic has mostly eliminated those emissions through a partnership with the Denver Beer Company. The brewery collects its excess gas and bottles it into a massive silver container. The, the cool part about the, this whole system is that if I were to open this valve, the CO2 actually smells like beer. <laughs> After lights and climate controls, the CSU study found that carbon dioxide is the third largest emission source for indoor grows. So projects to recycle the gas from local sources, they might actually help make cannabis just a little bit greener. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you to the team that cultivates Colorado Matters every day. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.